0: in this season of thanksgiving that's this is the one thing that we should never lose sight of every day how grateful we are for your love for us in the gospel and lord i pray now as we turn to your word and again that we would always have hearts that are open to receive it I pray for the work of the Spirit of God among us in our midst. The one who helps us to understand the Scripture as we compare Scripture with Scripture and as we do our part to to study, to show ourselves approved unto God. And I pray now, Lord, that you would just give each one of us a quiet heart and a listening ear. There would be no distractions, Lord. And We would just be eager, Father, to hear the Word and to obey the Word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So my intention this morning is to finish up this short study on baptism. Baptism, as you know, is one of the two ordinances, call them ordinances, that the Lord gave to the church. And every Christian who has acknowledged Christ as their Savior is to be baptized in obedience to his command as a testimony to their faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is not a covenantal rite given to parents who sprinkle their children as a pledge that they're going to bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. It's a symbol of personal conversion and commitment to Jesus Christ. Baptism is not the New Testament equivalent of circumcision because the church has not replaced Israel in the plan of God. God has a purpose for the church and God has a purpose for Israel. So we're going to talk a little bit about the word baptism. I'm going to put a little definition here from Strong's Concordance up. You can see this. Baptizo is the Greek word, if you would read it in the Greek New Testament. The definition, to dip or to sink. Literally, to submerge. Specifically, of ceremonial dippings. In Bauer, Arnold, and Gingrich's Greek lexicon of the New Testament, it defines the word as plunge, dip, and wash. It was used of immersing garments in dye, so they would be completely colored with the dye, and of ships sinking, immersing themselves, immersing, going down into the sea. And it's a strange word because it's it's not translated literally, Greek into English. It's a transliteration of the biblical word, which means to immerse. Now, in transliteration, each letter of a foreign word is given its equivalent. So baptizo, which is what you would read in the Greek text, becomes baptize. If you were translating literally, it would say immerse. And baptisma becomes baptism. Now in our statement of faith, here's what we say about this. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water to show forth in a beautiful and solemn way the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through baptism, the believer testifies to his faith in Christ Jesus in a visible and public manner. And you see those scriptures there. We'll cite a couple of them in a, in a little bit. You also have Colossians 2.12, which says, Buried with him in baptism. As believers, we have been buried in him, with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the working of God, or the operation of God, who raised him from the dead. So the Great Commission, you're familiar with that, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, should read, if translated correctly, like this. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples, or teach all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and that is the command, part of the command, to be baptized. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So baptism is is really one of the great symbols of the Bible. It's, It's a symbol of the beginning of the Christian life. And it should only be given to those who have, in fact, Begun the Christian life. It requires a new spiritual rebirth. And this is really important because believer baptism safeguards the idea of a redeemed church. That the people who are going to be coming into your church to be part of this ecclesia, this community of believers, they're true believers, as far as we can determine. Infant baptism undermines the idea of a redeemed church because you have infants being administered into literally, like in the Roman Catholic Church, on the membership roles of the church. And they're, they're obviously not saved. So what is baptism? As I said, it's symbolic. It's, it's faith put on display. It's your faith in Jesus Christ put on display. It is the visible sign to other Christians. And to any non-Christians who would happen to be at a Christian baptismal service, it's a visible sign of the saving truth of the gospel embraced by the repentant sinner, the one who is being baptized that day. Turn, Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. The story of Paul's ministry in Corinth. It says in Acts chapter 18, And after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Athens was a wicked city full of pagan temples, and so was Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And here's his evangelistic method. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and he said, Your blood be upon your hands. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered into the house of a certain man named Justus, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, The ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. That is always the biblical order. Believe and be baptized. A new birth. Baptism symbolizes the new birth, or born from above what we call born again, this is new life. This is new life, and it must precede baptism because man, all men, born into this world, in their natural condition is that they are dead in sin, which means that they are separated from God and they are incapable of saving themselves apart from the grace of God. No merit of my own, the hymn goes, his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. And that righteousness is imputed to the believing sinner. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? To have the righteousness of Christ. So it's an alien righteousness that we receive by way of trusting Christ. But Ephesians 2 1 says, in you he made alive. Actually, the words made alive aren't in the Greek text. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Dead in sin is believed by many Greek grammarians to be what is called a locative of sphere. And that means that this is the sphere in which the natural man walks. He walks among dead men. It's the sphere in which he lives, prior to Christ, prior to him being born, in the sphere of Christ, and that's what those two little prepos- that little preposition in means in Christ. You move out of the sphere of death and into the sphere of life, because he who has the Son what has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So literally, and this is why I tell you, when you meet people who don't know the Lord, they're dead men walking. Who is going to give them the word of life if not you? And sometimes we hesitate. I I met a man the other day. His name is Anton. And I was a little hesitant, you know, it didn't seem like the kind who might be receptive, but he, he was kind of busy doing doing some work for me on, on my car. But nevertheless, he had a tattoo that said, only God can judge me. So after everything was all over, I said, hey, Anton, I says, I saw your tattoo. He said, yeah, I says, only God can judge you, right? And he says, yeah. And I says, and you know he will, right? and it just opened the door. I didn't know how he would take it. But afterwards, he was so thankful. And he received a track I gave him, and he said he would love to come to church, but he works on Sunday morning, so pray for him. But that's just one example. That's just one example. Don't be afraid to share the word. People without Christ are dead men walking. How will they have life if you don't tell them? So the unbelievers, the unsaved, are dead in sin. But we'll see here in the scripture in a little while that believers are dead to sin. Unbelievers are dead in sin. Believers are dead to sin. That doesn't mean that they don't sin, but it means that sin is no longer the governing principle or or rule of their life. Luke 9.57, it says, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, and here's his clear command, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead, these are spiritually dead, bury their own dead, those who are literally dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another said, Lord, I will follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. People are f- full of excuses, aren't they? It was no different in Christ's time. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand on the plow and looking back or turning away is fit for the kingdom of God. So when we say that men are dead in sin, what we're saying is that sin has permeated the whole being of man, his his thoughts, his thoughts desires, his will. It's permeated to the deepest levels of his being. It doesn't mean he's totally unable to respond to the grace of God when the Spirit of God comes and convicts him. And we also need to say this. unsaved people are not as bad as they can be. Some are worse than others, right? So every unsaved person is not as, as bad as he can be, or bad as someone else, but they are as bad off as they can be without christ now i want to go back to luke 15 and we looked at the story of the, the the prodigal we call him the prodigal uh son it's actually the lost son because the the story comes in the midst of parables about things that are lost so luke 15 <laughs> Excuse me. Let me find the story here. Go down to verse 11. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the young son gathered all together, and it says he journeyed to a far country. Where would that be? That would be Gentile territory. So in the hearing of a Jew listening to this story, Gentile land depicts this son's complete separation from his heritage and from his father. And that's the natural state of people born into this world. Ephesians 2:11 says, "Therefore, remember that you once, Gentiles in the flesh, they weren't saved, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That's the Jews, made in the flesh by hands. They literally circumcised their their sons. So he's referring now to their prior condition before they received Christ, and he says at that time." And then he begins to, 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 to give a fivefold indictment on the human race. You were without Christ. You were aliens, here's the word, separated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise going back to Abraham, having no hope and without God in this world. That's the condition of these dead men walking that you see all around you. Ephesians 4.17, Paul says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. So he's making an appeal here to believers. and he's saying don't walk like the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, and their blindness is rooted in their sinfulness. as the more and more that they embrace sin and and reject Christ, they get they're literally dark things become darker and darker. Scripture truths become obtuse to them. and it says in Romans one twenty one because although they knew God. They knew God, not in a personal way, but they had the revelation of God, the heavens declared the glory of God, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, progressively darkened. And then there's the process of judicial hardening that takes place along this. They weren't born in that state. They became that way. So then you go back to the story here in Luke chapter 14, and I love it. I think I preached two messages or three messages on it. It says in verse 13, and not many days after, the young son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. That means riotous, wasteful living. He spent all, and there rose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in need. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. So this lost son hits rock bottom to use the common phrase. He couldn't sink any further down. Someone said, and I'm not sure who originated the quote, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's the effect of sin, rock bottom. But notice the repentance of this lost son, beginning, beginning in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he was able to recognize his 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 condition, that he had hit rock bottom. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and and I'm perishing with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. This this is humbling oneself. He had renounced his father. He was going to make his own way in the world." I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, and here's here's the repentance, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's humility. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Listen to me, the lost son could not remedy his condition. So what did he do? He cast himself on the mercy of the Father. And if you look down further, and you just read down a little bit more, it says, and he rose and came to his father, verse 20. And when he was still a great way off, the father saw him and what? Had compassion. God is compassionate. He is full of mercy, tender mercy. He will receive anyone who comes to him in humility asking for mercy, asking for forgiveness. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight, no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and, and bring the fatted calf here. And he killed it. Let us eat and me merry, for, for this, my son was dead and he is alive again. That, that's a picture of the new birth he is alive again he was able to acknowledge his deadness so he wasn't corpse-like dead like lazarus that's physical death he humbled himself he cried out for mercy he confessed his sin he knew his desperate condition and just like the lost son in this parable that jesus told all men Women and children without Christ are alienated from God because of their sins. You've seen this, the bridge track. I use the bridge track all the time. It's it's just a great tool. But there's man in his, his natural state. And there's God. And there's a great barrier, sin. His sin separates him from God. But go on. Doesn't end there. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. And he desires to save. Nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden him from you so that he will not hear. Isaiah 59. He will not hear. All right. So next, next picture here for you to grasp. This is also in the bridge track. So there was the problem. We saw sin separated man from God. Ephesians two eight and nine. Grace through faith, not human effort, not of works. That's what brings salvation. So Jesus Christ is the bridge. He bridges the gap of separation between man and God, and you receive the gift. Of eternal life. Prior to that, all men are are subject to eternal death, eternal separation from God. What is eternal life? Permanent fellowship with God. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for the cross of Christ. And this new birth is life from above. It's life from the Spirit. John John 3.5, we talked about this a lot last week. Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and that's not baptismal water, born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It takes a supernatural act of God through the power of the Spirit. And water is a picture of spiritual cleansing by the Spirit through the word of the gospel. Jesus said in John 15, 3, You are already clean. Praise God. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. If you want to be cleansed of your sins, it has to come through the power of the word of God. Ephesians 5.26, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. This is the cleansing agent. So Herman Hoyt, he was a theologian. From Genesis to Revelation, when the immediate source of life is denoted, it is always the Spirit of God to whom this function is attributed. It is therefore altogether logical that the Word of God and the Spirit of God should be joined together in the event of the new birth. It's not the Word without the Spirit. It's not the Spirit without the Word. It's the Word and the Spirit that brings life. This is why we have our statement of faith reading like this. This is from our church, the agent of regeneration. We believe that the divine agent regeneration is the Holy Spirit. Just quoted this verse, Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the supernatural work of the Spirit. The Spirit works in concert with the Word of God. James 1.18, we've been begotten from above through the Word, through the preaching of the Gospel. Paul says in First Corinthians 4.15, that to the Corinthians, he says, that he became like a father to them. He says, I have begotten you, I have begotten you, given you life through the gospel. Paul wasn't the one who gave them the life, but he was he was the instrumental means that preached the gospel to them. And when the Spirit of God convicted them, they turned to Christ. As we saw in Acts chapter 18, many of the Corinthians believed and they were baptized. But going back to this verse, and there's a verse in 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, You won't won't bow your knee to Jesus. You won't obey the truth without the work of the Spirit. Through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. What is that incorruptible seed? Through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We must preach the word of God to lost sinners. We must preach the gospel to those who are in need. And Baptism is a beautiful picture of of the person who has embraced the gospel. And baptism by immersion is the biblical mode of baptism. It was the mode of the early church up until about the late second century. We know in Matthew chapter 3, if you read the story, Jesus was baptized in a river. In a river, the Jordan River. It says in Mark 9, he came up out of the water. Luke says we're buried. Jesus was buried in his baptism, literally. Jesus was raised up out of the water, the scripture says. All of those things, and can't conclusively say, they talk about immersion. I guess you could walk down into a river and get some water and sprinkle somebody, but why would you even have to do that? You know, the the idea is, you know, they... He was baptizing where there was a great water source. It says in John 3 2, after these things, these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with him and baptized. John also was baptizing in Anon, near Salem, because there was much water there. Much water there. You don't need a whole lot of water to sprinkle people or pour it over them. And they came and they were baptized. Look in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, 31. So let's actually look back in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who, had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 53. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And here's the, here's the logical question. Do you understand what you are reading? A lot of people read the Bible. They have no real understanding of what they are reading. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place that he was reading read like this. Speaking of Jesus, he was led as a sheep to his slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answers Philip and says, I, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth. That's what, God's, that's what it takes. Brothers and sisters, open your mouth. You have the words of life. People are thirsty. That thirst could only be satisfied with the word of God and the gospel. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preach Jesus to him. Pray, meet people, tell them about Jesus. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and he said, And here is his declaration of faith I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he is the Messiah. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, The Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, and I often wonder what the eunuch was thinking. Right, doesn't happen anymore like that. So I want to move on here with three significant aspects of baptism. Number one, it is a look back at what Christ has done for us. Listen, that's what the Lord's Supper is, right? It's a memorial. We celebrate it in, in memory of Him. So it's a look back at what Christ done, but baptism is also a look back at what Christ has done for us because it calls to mind Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and the believer's unity with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is what Romans 6 is all about. It's not about water baptism. Romans 6.3, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We understood that his death was necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism, through this, this unity of putting our faith in him just as he was buried we were buried through baptism into death just and ju, that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father even so we should walk in newness of life and that's what baptism is it's it's just the it's a picture sermon the person being baptized is saying i've died with i'm died to sin I'm, my old life is being buried and they're they're, they're immersed under the water I recognize Christ as my saviour he He died and was buried and rose again and i'm rising i'm I'm now rising again out of this water as a testimony that I want to walk in newness of life in newness of life first corinthians fifteen three I delivered to you first of all, Paul says that which I received that Christ what died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he what rose again on the third day. So it's a declaration, really, of the gospel message. It's a look back. Secondly, it's a look forward, Romans 6, 5. What does that mean? It testifies that our physical bodies will die one day. It's appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment. Our physical bodies will will die. They'll be buried or cremated but they will be resurrected one day in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Wow. Romans 6, 5. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He was the first fruits, the first fruits of many more who will be raised, the scripture says. There were people who were raised from the dead before, but Jesus was the the only one who was raised by his own power. The others were raised by the power of God or the power of Christ. So it's a look back at what Christ has done for us. Secondly, it's a look forward to our own resurrection. And thirdly, it's a declaration of the end of sin as the rule of life for the believer. Read on, Romans 6.6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. When people were crucified in that day, they were dead. There was no doubt about it. It was a death sentence. We were crucified him with him that the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be the servants of sin. You won't live like you once lived. You won't do what you once did. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, cannot take hold of him, did not take hold of him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, in the same manner, also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to god in jesus christ our lord unbelievers are dead in sin believers are to be dead to sin as the operating power of their life you still have an old nature but you have received a new nature and and if we if we i'm under the control of the holy spirit do not be drunk with wine but filled with the spirit then we will be operating and living our life out of this new nature and not out of the old nature. Every time you you fall into sin, it's, it's surrendering to the old nature. Every time you, if you would, and I hope you wouldn't, you would swear to take the Lord's name in vain. That's the old nature. Every time you get angry with someone, apart from righteous anger, and there's very little of that, It's the old nature, it's the old man, the old woman, the old flesh. How about sinful thoughts? Well, we live in a sinful world. We're exposed to all kinds of things, so those thoughts enter our our minds. We can't get away from it all. But we don't have to entertain those thoughts, right? You can flee what? Flee, flee from the from from Satan. He's a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You can't stand and fight. You got to run. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Fill your mind with good things, not bad things, not evil things. There's a lot that you can do in the process of salvation. So just because it says we're dead to sin doesn't mean we no longer sin. This, because First John says if we are going to sin, we're to confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and keep on cleansing us. But listen, look at your life from the moment of your salvation, and and you should you should see a path upward. You should definitely see a path upward, right, brother? No, it shouldn't be like this. It should be a steady, slow growth upwards in holiness. And if it's not, you, need, you really need to think about what's going on in your lives. Because God has given to us everything the Bible says that is necessary for a life of faith and godliness growth in the Lord. Colossians 3.1 says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, it's not always easy to do because we're preoccupied with things on this earth. We have to be occupied with a lot of things that come our way at every every part of our life. In your home, raising your children, going to work, business. You can't avoid those things. But don't become fixated on those things. Don't let those things be the sole things that is driving your life. Because it's all going to come to a quick end someday. And quicker than you think. Quicker than you think. So set your mind on things above. Fill your mind with the word of God. With thoughts of God. Praying without ceasing as you're going along in the midst of those duties. For you died. This is God's declaration of us. When we we turn to Christ. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So unsaved are dead men walking. This is dead reckoning. Reckoning yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God. That's what the scripture says. So when the temptation comes, you you, you know, I, I, I died to this. I died to that old way. That old man's trying to take control. No. Let the Spirit of God take control. Well, it's a process, right? The sanctification. Salvation occurs in in just a moment. But God God is working in the lives of people who are unsaved. The grace of God comes to them over and over and over again. Cornelius, Acts 9, was an unsaved man. But yet he's offering prayers and alms up to God. Now, if he was corpse-like dead, how could he do that? He couldn't. He couldn't. Paul, over and over in the Scriptures, persuaded people, reasoned with people. You could reason with a dead man all you want. Why? Why would Paul do that? Because. He believed that though he was dead in sin and separated from God, they're still capable of understanding, reasoning. They still have a conscience. And the Spirit of God works through those things when the Word of God comes and brings conviction. Mark 12, 28 says, One of the scribes came to him, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? So here's the scribe. Asking Jesus, what's the first cam- commandment, the most prominent? And Jesus answered him and said, The first of all, the commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the Shema of Israel. And you will love the Lord your God with your whole, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. There is no more commandment, no other commandments greater than these. Because the whole of the law, all of man's duties toward God and all of man's duties toward his fellow man are contained in those those commandments. The whole of the law is contained in those commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So then the scribe said to him, you're right. Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, your heart, with all your understanding, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow, the light was coming on. It was not there yet, but the light was coming on. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I want you to think about this. You may be hesitant to share the gospel with someone whom God has already been gun working on. And they may not be far from the kingdom of God. So God sends you to push them on, to push them a little further by sharing the word of God with them. Joseph and I were eating, I mentioned this one time on Wednesday night, but we were eating in an, in an olive garden. There was a waitress who came, and at the end, I'll make a long story short, I shared the gospel with her, and and you never know what the reaction is going to be, and she says, tell me, I, I want to hear She knew nothing about God. She knew nothing. But she said, you know what? And she pulled out this little track. And she said, somebody gave me this just last week. It was a gospel track. Marie says, I wonder if it was Grace. Grace Manning. So it was the second time in a week or two weeks, whatever it was, that somebody was reaching out to her. Not far from the kingdom of God. I wonder who will be that third witness. That's the grace of God. What, what Rowan Wearsby says, what, is it, what does it mean when a person is not far from the kingdom of God? It means that he or she is facing truth honestly. Like described. And is not interested in defending a party line or even his his personal prejudices or ambitions or beliefs. It means the person is testing his or her faith by what the Word of God says. is willing to test their faith, what they believe, by what the Word of God says. And then if they come under the hearing of the Word of God, they're willing to set aside all of that and the Spirit will work and will begin to open up their heart to the truth of the Gospel. The saving truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they receive that, they're born again. They're no no longer far from the kingdom of God. They are in the kingdom of God. It's wonderful, isn't it? Tell me, this is the best news. Is this the best news? How many say this is the best news that anyone could ever hear? then why don't you tell people? If you just admit it's the best news that anyone could ever hear, then why are you holding it? Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. Help us to be ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, not defending this church, not defending our own personal wisdom of some sort or. Or beliefs, but just presenting the truth from the Word of God, and let the Spirit of God bring conviction. We can't do that. We can't do that. We're just we're just water boys, water girls, bringing the Word of God to people. The the life giving water of God's Word to satisfy a need that they may not even recognize they have. Help us, Lord. Empower us to be your servants. To tell people what we have received so that they can have the same gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.